If you would, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. For the last three weeks and for this week and the next three weeks, we are preaching through the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross. We've just gone through the first three weeks, but just to give you an idea of where we are, in this text where we are right now, today, um, this is like the last hour of Jesus on the cross. About 18 hours earlier or so, Jesus was with his disciples in the upper room. He was having their last supper with them, and then about 15 hours ago, Jesus was in the garden praying. About 12 hours ago or so, or at midnight, not necessarily 12 hours, but around midnight is around the time that he was arrested. And throughout the night, he was tried multiple times. He was beaten. He was humiliated. He was spit on. He was bruised. He was just tortured, really. At 9 o'clock in the morning, he was nailed to the cross. And between 9 and noon, we see that Jesus did his first three sayings at some point in there. Some believe they were all done pretty quick when he was raised up on the cross, that he looked out over the crowd and he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That doesn't surprise us. In the conversation that is going on between the two thieves on the cross and the one finally comes around and says, you know, will you remember me? And Jesus told him, you will be with me in paradise this day. That happened after he cried out, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then somewhere in that time frame, Jesus looks down and he sees his mother and the other ladies that are with him and he sees his disciple nearby and he says, you know, Woman, behold your son. We, talk, we went over this last week. And he looked at John and said, Behold your mother. And then the scriptures tell us this. This is where we are in Matthew 27. Look at verse 45, and we'll just read a couple of verses here. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama." Sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there, when they heard it, began saying, This man is calling for Elijah. So darkness began to fall around noon until it says the ninth hour, which is around three o'clock. In that next verse, we see that that's where Jesus said, It says, In about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out. And so for three hours there, about three hours, darkness had fallen. And, 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 and I think it's important for us to know that this is just not some kind of cosmic thing that's going on here as far as a cloud cover or even an eclipse. For, for one thing, the Passover is done on the full moon. This was the week of the Passover, and so the moon is not anywhere near where the sun is right now. All right, so it can't be that. And even if it was that, I mean, I don't know if y'all remember the eclipse we had a couple of years ago around here. I was actually fortunate enough to be in South Carolina, and I drove to a place where it was going to be like the 100 
6% kind of eclipse thing. And listen, that lasted like four minutes, five minutes or something like that. I remember, you know, we were just sitting there, and yeah, it got a little dark and all that, but it wasn't there. It wasn't there for three hours. There was something, there was something different about this darkness. And in the scriptures, this particular word that is used for darkness, it is used in three ways. One is just nighttime. In other words, it was dark enough to be called night. The second way, it was used for the blind, when they were blinded and they were in darkness. That's the second way. But the third way is used in spiritual darkness. There are, I'm not going to read them all. There are like three pages here of verses that I printed out. If you want them, you can come up here and see them afterwards. But there are, some, there are three of these verses that are referenced to this in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Referencing this darkness they're talking about here. But that same word is used in places like, And the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. The king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. Throw out worthless slaves into the outer darkness. And men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. Open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light and from dominion of Satan to God. You can see the references here. A light to those who are in darkness. What fellowship has light with darkness? For you formerly were of darkness. Do not participate in unfruitful deeds of darkness. And, and I could just go on and on. There's, there's many verses here that talk about this idea, this same word being used as darkness. And so the idea here is, is it could be like this spiritual darkness is over the land as this is playing out. But it wasn't just a shade it wasn't just a cloud cover that kind of went over. This was something different and unique. And there's actually a couple of historians in different places that kind of remember. They wrote down things like something happened during this time where it got dark. And so it wasn't just a local phenomenon. It was something that happened in other places as well. And so he says here, and he points out, from the sixth hour darkness fell upon the land. And we can kind of get a, all I want you to see here is, I'm not saying this is like this outer darkness or spiritual darkness or anything. What I'm saying is the words that are used here are in a spiritual sense or there's like total nighttime. It wasn't just twilight. And so think about it, noon to three o'clock, if that happened around here, we'd be going, what's going on around here? What's happening? It's not something we would just go, well, I guess this is going to go away in a little bit. This is a thick cloud cover. No, that's not what they were talking about here. And he says, in about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out. This is the, uh, about the ninth hour, near the ninth hour, near 3 o'clock p.m. And he cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, I want to touch on the most obvious thing here. <clears throat> and this is where Jesus is crying out, why have you forsaken me? We, man, we just sang a beautiful song about him being on the cross in our place, him taking on the sins in our place. Uh, it's a heavy song, but it is a 
song of celebration as well. It's kind of like when Kyle is up here or whoever's up here, but today Kyle was up here saying we want to confess our sins, but we don't want to beat ourselves up over it because we recognize that in light of our sins, what we do have is something to celebrate. It is something to dance about. It is something to sing about. It is something to... Boy, I just turned a bunch of Southern Baptists off by saying that, didn't I? We don't dance, do we? Well, we should be able to, in the eyes of God, he should be able to see us, our hearts just exploding with joy. He should be able to see that in us. Even if we're not out here moonwalking across the floor or something, he should be able to see us experiencing the joy that he has for us and even within ourselves just being excited and displaying that for him. That's why, you know, I raise my hands during worship. I know some of you do. I know some of you don't. But I raise my hands because I'm just drawn to that. I used to not do that at all. But I'm just, that just, I'm compelled to raise my hands in worship. I'm compelled to hold my heart at sometimes in the songs. I'm, I'm, com- I'm compelled to sing loud Sometimes people want me to sing less loud, but I sing loud sometimes. And, and it's just something that I am I'm just compelled to do. And I think sometimes we are restrained. We restrain ourselves from dis, just displaying our joy, our excitement in what Christ has done for us. When he says here, and he's up on that cross, almost the ninth hour, my God my God, why have you forsaken me? It's at this time. I mean, he's been, he's been dealing with this cross for six hours. The pain, the physical pain is crazy right now. I mean, we all know about, you know, there's not just the nails in the hands and the feet. But Jesus actually went through some terrible things even before then with the scourging, with, with all the things that was done to him. And then when they pop you up on that cross and they drop you down in that, the sh- shoulder, shep- shoulder separation, sorry about that, shoulder separation that causes your weight of your body to go down and you end up having to push yourself up on that nail through the feet to just get a breath. They've been doing this for six hours. And so the physical pain is crazy right now. But right now Jesus is crying out, my God, you have forsaken me. And it is, it is that time. And listen, I'm just going to tell you right now, there are those out there that think it is at this time that Jesus lost his divinity. He became fully man and that, that he took on all the sin and that even some will say he actually became a sinner in the eyes of God and God turned his back on him and walked away from him. I don't believe that's the case. I do not believe Jesus at any time during this sinned, and I do not believe at any time during this he lost his divine nature. I believe that Jesus, when he was up on that cross, he was experiencing the wrath of God because the sin of man was poured out on him. 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says this, He made him, God, he made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of of God in him. In the same way, there is none in this room that is righteous in and of themselves. The only righteousness we have is in him. In the same way, Christ did not deserve to be punished for sin because of his life. It was because of us. 
he experienced the penalty, the wrath of God. And at this time, yes, there was a sense of forsaking. There was a sense of pain and, 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 and feeling alone up on that cross. But at no point did Jesus lose his nature at all in that. He had to be an unblemished lamb, a sinless lamb of God to be able to complete what he had started from birth until this point, this ninth hour of the day, this sixth, sixth hour of the cross, he had to completely remain sinless. But it was the sin of mankind that was poured out on him. And he experienced the wrath. I can't explain it. I'm just telling you what the scripture says. I don't understand the Trinity. I believe it. And so I don't try to sit around and try to convince people with this. The, well, you know what? Water and ice and steam and all that. I don't try to go through all that kind of stuff trying to explain the Trinity. All I'm saying is here, Jesus as he is up on that cross and he's experiencing not only the physical pain of the crucifix, he is also experiencing the spiritual pain of the sin of mankind being poured out on him. But more importantly, the wrath of God that he is experiencing on our behalf because of us. And listen. When we say that we are righteous in the eyes of God, it should mean much more knowing what he experienced on the cross on our behalf. Because there is nothing we have done. There is no one here who is good enough. There is no one who can call themselves righteous. In Romans, it says that no one seeks to do good. No one seeks out God. No one but God did not leave us in that state. He had a plan from the beginning, and here we are in the midst of his plan when Jesus is crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is the moment where Jesus is experiencing the wrath of God. And we're going to see later as he conquered sin and death and became victorious so that we might not experience the, any of that whatsoever. We'll see that later, but for in this moment, I want us to see this, that Christ was suffering for us, both physically and spiritually, so that we might, as Paul says here in Corinthians, become the righteousness of God in him. Isaiah, long ago, said, we all like sheep have gone astray, and the Lord has laid him, on him the iniquity of us all. On Jesus, on him, the iniquity of us all will be laid on him. In Hebrews 4, we see there, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but who has been tempted in all things yet without sin. In every way, he's been tempted. He can sympathize with each one of us wherever we are in our journey in life. He, he, he knows exactly what we're going through, not just not in his head, but he has experienced the temptations that we experience. But yet he was not sinned. He did not sin. It is important for us to realize that his death on this cross did not cause him to sin. He in no way sinned. He in no way lost his divine nature. But I think there is actually more here when he is crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
And there's a couple of reasons why. One, it says that he cried out with a loud voice. Now, you might say, well, what's that got to do with anything? There are a lot of verses throughout Scripture that talk about someone crying out or, or yelling out or calling out loudly or anything like that. But there, and there's two words that are used for that. And, you know, I've got, I, don't, I don't know exactly what they are. But in this case, this one word, this is the only time this word is used in the New Testament. The only time when it says he cried out. And it's the word anaboao. And all it is, all it is, is it, it is an intensified, boao is one of the words that is used many times when it says to cry out. But anaobao is a word that intensifies that to a maximum level. And so Jesus is up on this cross, he's experiencing this pain, and somehow he can muster up enough gunction to cry out in a loud voice, louder than he has ever done at a maximum level. He is crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, I don't, I have kind of experienced pain in the past. How, how many of you have ever had the breath knocked out of you? Anybody? It is not fun. I mean, I've had my knees worked on. I've had knee sl shoulder separations, broken nose. I've had all sorts of things. The worst thing I have ever experienced is getting the breath knocked out of me because in all honesty, while that is happening, I think I am about to die. My body's just seizing up. Everybody around me is saying, relax, relax, it'll be all right. No, man, I'm just seizing up and all that. But every time it happens to me, I have cried out louder than I have ever cried out before. And it's usually some, it's not even a word. It's usually just crying out. And I'm not about to do it here because I couldn't do it. When I've done it before, the people standing around me have been afraid of the volume that I'm using to cry out. And when I have seen people get the breath knocked out of them and they're, they're arching their backs, they're turning, they're doing this, there's this cry. And I usually can tell when I hear someone off the, oh, they just had the breath knocked out of them. I can usually tell by watching them or listening for that cry. This is something different here. This is, this is where he is using this one time this word is used where he cried out loudly, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The second thing is, this is the only time in the Gospels, I believe. I know in Matthew, I think I know in the Synoptic Gospels. This, but I know in Matthew, this is the only time that Jesus refers to God as God and not Father when he's calling out to him. This is the only time. Remember, right before this, a few hours earlier, he, was, he said, Father, forgive them. Or they know not what they do. In a couple of weeks, we're going to see where he says, Father, unto you I commit my spirit. So on either side of this, he's still crying out to Jesus. I mean, he's still crying out to God as Father. But right here, he's calling out to him, crying out to him, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so with these two things, really loud, and my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I believe that what Jesus is doing here also, suffering pain, dealing with sin, wrath of God, punishment, all that stuff. Yes, he was doing that. But I also believe he was taking time to get people's attention on what he was doing by referring to something that was written a thousand years earlier. And if you would turn in your Bibles to Psalm 22, we're going to look at that. And Psalm 22 is written by David, 
It's a, you know, going through a difficult time. And, and in this psalm, there are just examples of what is going on here. And I want us to, this psalm is not just one of the many psalms. This was an important psalm to the people of Israel. This was, this was a psalm that in the Babylonian captivity, they cried out. They referred to this psalm. This psalm was one of those in, in the festivals that was read in public. This psalm is one that during the 400 years and of, of, of no prophet speaking between the Old Testament and the New Testament, of not he- hearing from God, people were crying out, My God, my God, why have you first? They were going to this psalm because... We'll see here in a little bit. Just look at it. The very first verse, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh, my God, I cry day, but you do not answer. And by night, and I have no rest, you are holy. Oh, you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel, in you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. Now I want you to start looking at these references and seeing how they, what they have to do with what Jesus is going on in, in, in the cross this day. I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate their lip. They wag their head saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. We see Jesus kind of going through this, this wagging of the head in Matthew 27, 39, just a few verses earlier, what we were just looking at. Let him rescue him because he delights in him, yet you are he who who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breast. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Be not far from me. He goes on and he talks about many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They opened wide their mouth at me as ravenous and roaring lying. I am poured out like water. And all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a pot's herd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers have encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. This particular reference is something that a thousand years earlier was not done. Can you imagine when they were, when they were writing this, they were asking themselves, what does this mean? The crucifixion wasn't good. That's a Roman thing. That's something the Romans brought to the table. And so here, David, a thousand years earlier, is writing, they pierce my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Did we not just see this last week? When he's looking down and he sees his mother, it says right before he responded to his mother, he said, and they were casting lots for that tunic that they did not want to tear in two. I believe what is going on here, and, and, and we will see here in a little bit, I believe what is going on here, Jesus is crying out with the loudest voice that is referenced in the New Testament here when, he, when he's crying out this way, and when he's referencing this verse to get the people to remember, all the people who are there, as far as they can hear his voice, to remember Psalm 22. 
And can you imagine, can you just imagine if you had been one of those and you get caught up in the, what was going on, the chaos of the day and all this, and all of a sudden you have been taught Psalm 22. You have read Psalm 22 every year during these festivals. You have referred to Psalm 22 when you've gone through difficulties yourself. You, have, you know this passage, you know this book, this Psalm 22. And then when he starts off by crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And they start stepping back and thinking about, these guys are dividing up his clothes down here. People are walking by sneering at him, wagging their heads at him. We're going to see next week when it talks about, when he says, I am thirsty. When it talks about his, his, the, the, his mouth is dry. I mean, all of these things are pointing to What David wrote a thousand years earlier are pointing to especially the piercing of the hands and feet. I can imagine right there, there's some people that are walking around, they're interacting with people, and as soon as he cries out, they start thinking about it, and they go, that's what that meant. The piercing of the hands and the feet. That's what, and you can just start, I can imagine their minds just racing through this psalm pulling out meaning that they have never seen before, and it's playing out right in front of them, and they are the dogs. They are the ones who are wagging their heads, who are sneering at him. All of them are the ones who are doing this to him. When Jesus was crying out, he was not crying out in despair. Listen, he was not crying. Despair, when we read throughout many places, despair would have been a little bit too close to sinning because despair is like losing hope. Despair is not necessarily trusting in God. Despair is, Jesus was not crying out in despair here. He was not, he was, in in this context, he was fully trusting in God, I believe. Referencing this text, pointing people to what David wrote a thousand years ago, to the God that was going to allow this to happen, to the God that was there even amongst them that would be willing to receive them, and even the days and weeks, months, and years later. I believe this is why in the early church in Acts, when the Holy Spirit started moving and the disciples started preaching publicly, that we start seeing thousands of people come to faith because they experienced, they were there watching what was going on. And then when they would go out to other places, because if you remember, this is Passover, there are a bunch of people coming to town. A whole lot of people are coming to town, and it is there when they go back home asking questions, when the disciples show up in those places, when Paul shows up in those places, and he starts teaching in the synagogues, you see people responding because he's opening their eyes up from the scriptures. He's teaching them Isaiah. He's teaching them the Psalms. He's teaching them all of these things when he's opening up their mind and their eyes, and the Spirit is working, and the people are looking back at what happened on that day I believe that's why there is like a crazy revival going out across the land. Yes, the Spirit is moving, but these folks were eyewitnesses to what happened. And I believe they heard what Jesus said. And listen to what he says here in Psalm later on. This is why I believe this is when he's crying out. Yes, he's in pain. Yes, he's feeling, he's feeling like, you know, this is getting... Listen, Jesus knew what he was getting into to begin with. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane 
when he's praying? I mean, it's in, in, in Matthew chapter 14, verse 33, it says he was distressed and troubled. In verse 34, it says, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. In verse 35, prayed that if it were possible, that hour might pass him by. And in verse 36, we all know this one, asking the Father if he could take this cup from him. But also knowing, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus knew what was going on here. And even when they came and arrested Jesus there, and he kind of told everybody, whoa, whoa, I'm, stop this in, in John 18. So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, he asked them, whom do you seek? Jesus knew what was going to happen. He might not have known the extent of things. You know, there's people out there, and I don't like getting into these conversations with guys that just want to try to assume and speculate and things like that. But here, he knows that what he's about to go through is going to be horrible. And as Jesus is up on that cross, he not only is doing the work that the cross is there for, satisfying the wrath of God so that we might experience all that God has for us so that we don't have to experience the wrath of God. In him, we are seen as righteous. Not in ourselves. Because in him... On that cross, he took care. He, he paid the debt for our sin. And yes, he cried out, but it wasn't in despair. And it wasn't a, a, it wasn't a response in his human, sinful nature. There was nothing about that that happened on that cross. Later on in Psalm 23, we start seeing in verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you descendants of Israel, for he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard. From you comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. And it goes on a little more. Does that sound like the heart of someone who believes they have been forgotten, forsaken? You might have felt, how many of us have felt alone or forsaken and realized we never were? Each one of us, each one of us in this room, at some point in time, whether it's in our faith or even in our relationships, we have felt like, man, just nobody cares about me. When actually... There are people who care about you. I, I know I would think, my mom and dad, they don't care about me. That's a lie of the enemy. I don't care how far I disagree, how much I disagree with my mom and dad. I know, especially from my experiences with my sons, that there is nothing they can do to cause me to love them any less. I might get disappointed in them. I might disagree with them. But there is nothing they can do to cause me to love them any less. And how much more love of God 
How much more the love of Jesus as, as, as he displayed taking our place on this cross. How much more is that love, that relationship, that attention to us, how much more can that be? I don't care how much we feel like we have been, we're alone or isolated. We have been promised that he will never leave us nor what? Forsake us. And so, yes, on that cross, it was, man, can't even imagine. I don't even want to experience a fraction of that. But our goal should not be to, become, to, to, to avoid that by becoming Christian. Our goal is to be to embrace what he did, to embrace him, to pursue him, not avoid that. Let me just... When I first became a Christian, honestly, I, I, for the longest, I thought I was because I kept saying, well, I'm not going to hell. Well, I'm not going to hell. That was, that was, that was the only thing I knew. I knew nothing about Jesus. I, knew nothing. I just kept saying, I'm not going to hell. I wanted to avoid hell, and that was my goal for calling myself a Christian. But it wasn't until I saw the beauty of Christ, not only in this story, but all throughout the Gospels, when I started seeing the beauty of Christ and his desire for me. And I started hearing things that I have shared with you over the last few weeks about how he wants us to experience the fullness of his joy. He wants us to experience the peace that only he can give. He wants to give us hope where there is no hope. He wants to do all of these things for us. And when I started, I wanted to pursue him. Not to avoid that, but because he was greater than that, I wanted to run to him. And what I've discovered over time is that as we pursue him, we get closer to each other. Too often churches try to focus on Let's get to know each other. Let's love on each other. Let's serve. And we're supposed to do those things. But it is as we are in him, not just, listen, I can't bring much to the table to make you guys happy. I promise you. I don't have the personality skills to make you think that, you know, we're really great friends because we like the same things. We might like, you might like sports, and we can talk about that. And you might like fishing, and we can go do that together. And, and, and there's a lot of things like that. But there are some things about me that you probably just in the flesh, you just, man, that guy is. But as I pursue him, as I pursue him, as you pursue him, we come closer together. Not because of what we bring to the table, but because of him. And Christ deals with all that stuff within us. He changes us and transforms us and all that. But here, Jesus is drawing their attention as he is crying out to what David a thousand years earlier was saying about him. And it wasn't in despair. It wasn't because of hopelessness. Just like he did when he was risen up on that cross early on and he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. His heart was still for the people around him. When he said to the thief on the cross there, yes, you will be with me in paradise, he was still on mission and the ministry of reconciliation for God. He was still being a missionary on that cross. What excuses do we have for not being missional? for not being a missionary? Is it hard for us 
to be able to live a life that honors him and to share the gospel with other people and to point people to him and not to this church and not to our good works or anything like that, but to point people to him. Is, that, is it that hard? How hard compared to what he did when he suffered and died and did all that he did for us. Uh, this should not tear us down. This should motivate us. This should say, wow, if Jesus was that much not only taking on the punishment, but still pointing people to, to the Father from the cross, if he was doing that, how much more in whatever difficulties I might go through can I do it? Not because I bring anything to the table, but because I pursue him in him. I want people to see Christ, not David Hutton. I don't want people to see Redeemer Church. I want people to see Christ. I don't want people to see good works and all these kinds of things. I want us to point people to Christ and that they see Christ in us. And that is the baseline. That is the, that's where it begins. That's, what, that's all we bring to the table is a full submission, surrender to him, knowing what he has done for us so that we can point people to Christ. Let's pray. Father, that was a terrible, horrible day. But it was a necessary day. Father, we know it had to happen that way for us to have any hope whatsoever. And for that, Father, we love you. We thank you. We know that we bring nothing to the table, that we do not deserve in any way your attention or the righteousness that you see in us. We are nothing. But Father, your plan and your love and your desire for your people had to, made what happened necessary. As horrible as that day was. Father, help us as we go throughout this season to not avoid the pain, the blood that we see in the scriptures, that we see in movies, depictions that we talk about. Help us not to just avoid those things, but to use those things to even magnify your love for us, to magnify your joy for us, that we might, as we abide in Christ and he in us and his love in us and his word in us, that we might have his joy and that his joy would be full in us. Help us, Father, understand and to live our lives in response to that, knowing that because of your love for us, Jesus died in our place. Help us to live our lives in a way worthy of that great love. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.